Welcome to The Unstoppable Singer. I'm your host, Danielle Tucker, a professional vocalist, vocal coach, and a lead singer of the Mighty Untouchables Band. I'm also the producer and host of the Pandemic Proof Singer Summit and The Unstoppable Singer. The Unstoppable Singer follows the lives of real professional singers who've made incredible achievements in their lives and careers. We cover everything from voice work, making money, booking gigs, songwriting, recording, session work, and more. If you haven't yet, hit that subscribe button so you never miss another podcast. Now on with the show. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another empowering episode of the Unstoppable Singer podcast. I am your host, Danielle Tucker. The Unstoppable Singer is an interview style show where we dive into the lives of real professional singers who have achieved incredible feats in their careers. We explore the challenges and the triumphs that come with a life under the bright lights, and we learn what being unstoppable truly means to them. So if you are passionate about music and the stories of remarkable artists, then you're in the right place. So stick around because we're going to jump right into it. Ladies and gentlemen, and advocates of social justice, get ready for an exceptional episode of The Unstoppable Singer. It's my privilege to introduce you to the remarkable Dr. Alexandra Lloyd Blake. He is a conductor, composer, arranger, vocal contractor, singer, and a passionate music activist. He's not just a musician. He's a driving force behind unity, peace, and social justice through culturally diverse choral settings. As the founding artistic director of Tonality, an award-winning choral ensemble. He spreads a message of unity and empowerment through music. He also serves as a principal associate conductor of the National Children's Chorus, shaping the future of music. Uh, Blake's remarkable music journey includes conducting operas, preparing choirs for live performances, and contributing to iconic film soundtracks. His influence extends to the silver screen with singing credits on movies like Us, The Lion King and Black Panther Wakanda Forever. So join us as we take a deep dive into Alexander's musical world and explore the impact of music as a force for positive change. Welcome to the spotlight, my friend. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for doing this. It's such an honor to have you here today. It's wonderful to at least get to meet you online. Yeah, same. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So you have just an incredible background. So I know we have so much that we can learn from you, but catch us up on what you have currently going on today. What projects are you involved in? What are you promoting right now? Sure. So Tonality has a performance on trans rights coming up December 1st and 3rd. And we are going on a tour next uh, next spring. So just gearing up, getting ready for those concerts. A lot of the tour will be on issues of mental health and destigmatizing suicide. And then uh, personally, uh, I've been getting my hands, I guess, wet in the composing world. And I, I received a grant to write a piece on Ahmaud Arbery. So working on that to be finished in uh, 2025. Wow. Yeah, so just trying to stay busy. Wow, that's incredible. Well, I want to hear more about um, Tonality and the origins of that, how you got that started. Um, what uh, What is the singer makeup of that group? What is the touring like? What's the audience like? Yeah, so Tonality started in 2016. And really, the we are known now 
for doing social justice concerts. But the beginning of the group was really just to answer a question about the lack of diversity, especially within professional choral ensembles. And as someone who has, you know, gone through a couple of years of school, uh, studying choirs and being in, in choral groups, continually, uh, continually finding myself in places where I was one of a few people of color mm. and where sometimes the music that were represented my background, I mean, I come from a gospel background. So some of the music was seen differently, treated differently. Uh, and I saw that wasn't just black music. It was really music of cultures that were not stemmed in Western European background. And so mm. I figured it would be amazing to try to imagine an environment where the same way that we revere Bach and Mozart and you know some of these these maestros of the classical world would also uh, that kind of respect and attention to care of the music mm-hmm. and the language and the performance style could be seen across uh, across all genres and so that was really the beginning of tonality and then of course 2016 was an interesting year in politics um, mm, yes. <laughs> and also uh, I think we were seeing a lot of you know we were seeing mass shootings and we were seeing kind of the, the things that we unfortunately are being seen too often and so I thought we could do more than just be diverse but we can use all of these voices to really speak toward change and empathy. Mm-hmm. And what is the singer makeup of the ensembles? Where do they come from? How large is the ensemble? So our concerts that we produce are 24 singers per concert, but then we've had some events, uh, some recording events and otherwise that are four. We've had some events that are up closer to 40. Uh, There are about 70 singers on the roster because there's so many things happening. Um, But the singers come from the Los Angeles area. A lot of our singers are recent graduates from vocal programs from around the Los Angeles area and also just professional singers especially as tonality has progressed, more professional singers who are trying to find interesting ways in, um, in various ways to use a voice and also to use a voice toward change. Mm-hmm. And for the concerts is, you know, again, kind of sticking with the original theme, just making sure that each concert shows and reflects the diversity that we see in our, in our county, in our country. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Um, and so is this a, uh, the, performances that you do, are they more localized or do you travel nationally? Do you tour with the group? They were localized uh, when yeah. we started, of course. Uh, I don't know if I had really a plan of how we would do more tours, but now mm-hmm. we are doing um, Bjork. Uh, we sang with Bjork a couple of years ago mm-hmm. and wow. that was our first traveling uh, performance. And then we got to also go to Virginia and Iowa with a Cronus Quartet. And so now we are doing more of our own tours. So we're going to Oregon and we're going to Northern California and Texas. And so we'll take a group of about 10 to 16 singers and try to find ways to not just perform, but find ways to really get involved with the communities and the causes that we're singing about. Yeah, that's amazing. That's it's that's an incredible contribution. And I'm, I, I would love to kind of go back in time and talk about your origin story and your vocal journey, your musical journey up until this point that would lead to, you know, such such an amazing um, ensemble that you've put together. Where did you get your start? I started in North Carolina from a very small town called Jacksonville. And I 
sang in the church, sang in gospel choir there. Uh, I was the nerd who always loved singing. You could not get me to sing the melody. I always loved singing harmonies. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so I was the kid who sang in the adult choir because I could sing harmonies and uh, just really enjoyed and really felt a personal connection to the music I was singing. Mm-hmm. And I think that helped me have a strong connection to my faith. And so uh, I sang in that until I started singing in middle school choirs. And that's when I got a little bit more uh, introduced to classical styles and classical singing. Mm-hmm. And I remember I went to a an honors course for a weekend uh, and we all sang this major chord together. And it was kind of the first time I had heard such a, a massive sound singing with about 160 people. Mm-hmm. And I thought this, this is what I what I want to be doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the, did you say that this was middle school age or high school age? That was middle school. I mean, uh-huh. frankly, I didn't really see, it was a beautiful moment, but I didn't really see a, a future in music in the arts. Uh, the city I was in was not really arts oriented. And just from my background and just, you know, always a mind on practical matters. Mm-hmm. I didn't really see music as a, I guess, a practical future. And so- Not a real job. Yeah, no, no. It was <laughs> it was cute to do as a hobby, but I didn't really consider that, you know, bills could be paid doing this work. So I, uh, I, I was going to say I was a nerd. I'm still a nerd, but I really loved math. And I thought my mother's a teacher, you know, I could teach math. Lovely job. I love doing it. And so I was going to major in math, but right before my senior year of high school, I went to this program called Governor's School mm-hmm. in North Carolina. And they, you can go from different subjects. And I thought, if I'm going to do math for the rest of my life, I should do choral music just one more summer. Mm-hmm. And I assumed that I understood sight reading and theory well for my small town, mm-hmm. which I mean, didn't really, you know, didn't really mean much in terms of like going out. And when I went to the statewide program, I realized like, oh, I actually might have some skills that are not just a small town relative skill, mm-hmm. but I might mm-hmm. actually uh, know some things. I took the music theory test on a whim <laughs> um, going into uh, college, and I, I scored um, kind of the higher marks for that test. And I think that was really the first sign for me and my family that was like, okay, maybe we can try this at least. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I went to undergrad at Wake Forest University in vocal performance and realized that I did not like singing solos. Okay. Um, which is funny. <laughs> uh, so it's like, I'm, I'm in this program and I'm, you know, I'm doing fine, but this is not really where my passion lies. Meanwhile, I was always in choirs. Since middle school, I was always starting choirs. Mm-hmm. And so my senior year, the university allowed me to create my own ensemble mm. and to conduct uh, some pieces, including a piece that I arranged. And that's when I knew that conducting was going to be part of my life moving forward. Yeah, yeah. Um 
I want to back up a little bit because I, I think it's really interesting just your educational background and in, in terms of like a formal education versus what just kind of came naturally to you. Cause you, you mentioned that, you know, you were just that person that, you know, was always picking up the harmonies. You're always that person in the car that yes, <laughs> <it's know>, <laughs> will take up the background vocals. Um, do you, did you feel like, were, were you getting a formal education? Were you taking training or were these just pure involvement in the, in, you know, being in choir at church and everything? Um, or was your family musical giving you lessons? My family was not musical. And I actually, uh, my mother told me a very funny story uh, about how I think I had a toy keyboard when I was really young um, and that I was playing the notes that I was hearing like on TV. Oh, wow. Which I thought was hilarious because I never got piano lessons after that. And I was like, <laughs> to me, that would have been, you know, there's something there. But um, yeah. But no, I think really, I talk about this a lot. Uh, it might not have seemed like formal training, but I think the oral skills, the listening skills I was receiving singing in a church choir, specifically in a choir that's doing gospel music, where you're constantly singing in these triadic harmonies it is its own type of education and it's a development of the ear that might not be seen as formal, but mm -hmm. I think more musicians, especially classical musicians would do very well by that kind of training, that rote learning. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I received a, a few kind of music ish lessons, but really my first formal lessons in theory and sight reading um, and the formal training of classical harmony happened in middle school. But I think really my ear and the things that I've been able to do stemmed from my development as a gospel singer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, before we go on more with, with your personal journey with music, I'm curious to see what your thoughts are um, as far as classical music in education nowadays, because I was also brought up in classical music from middle school on through high school and college. And, um, I, while I was very drawn to the music, loved the music, it, it would not have been, uh, what I was personally listening to or, or really like had a passion for, but that's what avail was available to me. Um, you know, that's what was available in school, but nowadays I'm finding like at the high schools and the middle schools since the age of like glee and, um, you know, Pitch Perfect, these movies and everything, so much of that is going away in the public school system. You know, what are your thoughts around that? What, what do you see as the future of um, classical music in uh, uh, middle school, high school? Yeah, I think uh, one of the great things about classical music is it, it really does teach you technique of how to use the voice. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it just becomes another tool um, of how to use the voice healthily. Um, and it's a very sustainable way of singing. Um, <clears throat> and I think can teach you tools that you can use in all other genres. I think my issue with, frankly, uh, with the kind of way we look at classical music education is that it is seen as this kind of like elite um, type of genres that surpass all others at times. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's, that's not what young people are looking for. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and I think people want to sing the things that relate to them. I'm mm -hmm. not saying that every 
classical choir needs to, you know, succumb to, you know, become the new glee. Mm-hmm. I think that it would be great if we can start to use classical music and talk about the stories that are within the music to relate to what's happening now. I think mm-hmm. it's there's been so much of classical music is this, and you should see it as this. Mm. And then that's it. We just assume that people should know and understand how important it is. And it's like no type of music, no type of art really can like lean on that. Um, and so I think... It's great, the kind of programs I've seen and when I taught at uh, LAXA, the School of the Arts, to be able to use classical music and multiple genres to really help students explore that this genre, just like all others, are ways that people use to express. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's great to be a consummate singer and musician to be able to go back and forth. And frankly, in this town, Um, it is quite a very valuable skill to be able to go into a room where, you know, a lot of the film scores lean on classical skills. Mm -hmm. Um, It's kind of choral, you know, very tall, loud, straight tone singing. And then when you're called to do other styles and you can immediately jump in one or the other and not be locked into one. So I hope that in the future, that uh, really the same type of versatility that we're seeing in the real world, um, that's the type of singing and the type of attention that, you know, students can start to receive at an early age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. That's, those are such great points. And, and I love that you're, you know, really able to uh, draw the connection between, you know, just modern application, you know, and, and how it's really relative, you know, in today's real world um, applications of that. And it, it kind of made me think of a, a funny conversation that I have over and over again with a friend of mine about solfege and, <laughs> and how, um, you know, I, I think I was just taught by default, you know, uh, solfege as as a kid and and grew up with it. And and I remember using it in certain, you know, choral applications and everything too. But of course, in today's music industry, uh, I I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but I never see it used other than, you know, we see like a a number system used and, and, um, you know, what do you think? (laughs) What do you think about that? Were you taught that? And do you see any practical application for it today? Yeah, you know, I love theory, so, you know, I'll probably have a biased uh, thought about that. I mean, yes, I think, to your point, it is something we were taught and it's never used. Yeah. Um, which I think is actually something that we could do better as educators. Mm. I feel like we teach sight reading as it's, it's this thing over here, mm. and then we don't use those skills to actually teach the music, which is really funny. It's like, why, why are we learning to read if you're not actually good at have yeah. people read. Um, so yeah, for sure. I think the the solfege, I think we could use it more because I, I it's a way to talk to people. Right. The number system is solfege. I mean, it's the same thing. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, instead of people already know how to count. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, learning these syllables in a way is is uh, you know, just another system to learn. But um depending on the room I'm in, I will use them both. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I think that just makes it more useful if you have those skills, mm-hmm. why not be able to utilize them? Um, but yeah, I think you're right. I think most people do use the number system more. Um, mm-hmm. 
And I, yeah, I doubt, I've never heard people talk about lay. <laughs> We're right. talking about flat six. Like it's just, they're just, it's a flat six. And it's just, you know, um, but those, those terms are useful. Mm -hmm. um, I think we just, we just need to like incorporate them more in education and not just in the sight reading hour. Yeah. But when you're talking in your classes about music, using those terms, you know, I've had uh, private students when I've taught sight reading, they'll sing a run and I'll say, okay, now that you've sung that, sing it on solfege and make them kind of, you know, stumble through. Yeah. But it's like, this is a practical application of what you're using. That's yeah. how we learn. Yeah. Maybe it really could be useful just like simultaneously being taught numbers and solfege at the same time, especially with the idea that every learner is different. We, we connect to the way the methodology that's, you know, used in something, something works different for every single person. And I know in my own private practice, I've, I've even recently discovered I uh, have a singer uh, with autism who she loves the solfege. It works for her. It just, she understands it makes sense for her where otherwise, um, you know, doing other types of exercises just don't seem to um, resonate for her as much. So um, I, I can, I can definitely see how, you know, it still applies. <laughs> in that yeah. Setting. I think theory in sight reading, especially for singers, I know this is, you know, a sensitive topic, um, especially depending again on what, you, what your musical background is. I feel like sometimes sight reading is equated to the type of musicianship and musician that people are. Mm -hmm. um, I love sight reading, always have. I don't love the fact that people who do not know how to sight read are sometimes made to feel like they're not a great singer. Frankly, mm -hmm. some of the greatest singers I know do not know how to sight read. Sure. And um, it is a skill, just like riffing and running is a skill, just like improvisation is a skill. These mm -hmm. are things that you can add to your toolbox to give yourself, again, various opportunities to be employed. But none of them should feel like they take away from, you know, whether it's solfege or numbers or you're learning from rote. Um, again, the more tools you have, just make it easier for you as a musician in town but mm -hmm. I think it's just very valuable. I always try to say when I can that just sight reading is a tool. Yeah. Yeah. That's thank you for making that point. That's great. So you're in college and you're given these opportunities to uh, start lead, conduct your, your own choral ensembles. Um, where does this then lead to after school? So <laughs> funny, random stories. Uh, I was in Winston-Salem. So once I graduated, I sang in the symphony chorus. I'll try to connect all the dots. Mm -hmm. So the conductor there, when he was a student, he went to Eastman School of Music in New York. His teacher was Donald Nguyen, who was then teaching at UCLA. So Don Nguyen came to visit his student in Winston-Salem. I met Donald Nguyen there, and uh, I really admired his technique and how well he knew the score. We were working on uh, Haydn's Creation Mass. Mm -hmm. And after that experience, I was able to talk with him in the week that he was there. And I applied to UCLA. And that's how I came out here. I was never planning on coming, certainly not staying. 
I had never been to LA before. I'd never been west of Colorado. Um, but I thought I would do grad school here. I was getting my master's there. I thought it would be a dream if I can get into USC, but who knows? And I would go back and teach in North Carolina because that's what I knew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so you're you're out here in LA, and I imagine just you have you know you have your academic life, the choral life, and now you're beginning to network with other industry professionals. And did that then lead to um, doing session work, or how did how did you get your foot in the door there? Yeah. So I. Yeah, I finished my master's. I started the doctorate at USC, and it was while I was in school that uh, tonality started. And while that was happening, uh, you know, we were doing concerts, and more composers were coming to concerts. And I had friends who knew different composers, so they were bringing them. And I met Michael Abels, who did the music uh, for all of Jordan Peele's films, and he brought Edie Boddicker. Uh, mm-hmm. vocal contractor to a concert and it's funny she asked me if I sang and I told her no because I was in the mindset of you know I'm here as a conductor uh, you know you just heard these beautiful singers and also I'm thinking about all the singers I know you know in town who can like sing circles around me so I was like you know I'm just I do this well um, <laughs> I also didn't know who she was. So then yeah. my friends were like, you said what to who? <laughs> so. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> yeah. So luckily Edie was amazing and I was able to get coffee with her and tell her what I meant. Yeah. Um, so I'm not a solo singer, but uh, if you need someone to sing the right notes the first time, I'm your guy. Yeah. Um, and then I learned about the world of session singing. I didn't know. Uh, mm-hmm. It's funny being in this town in two grad schools and had no idea that this world existed. Mm-hmm. Um, so Edie was really the uh, person who helped me kind of get into uh, the world of session singing. Mm-hmm. So I owe her a lot in terms of kind of everything that's happened since. But it was it was tonality that kind of opened the door for me as a singer, ironically, mm-hmm. even though I was conducting um, to get into that world. Yeah. And what were some of those... Um, do you recall any like wow moments where, you know, you got invited to, you know, work on a specific project or work with someone specific that just kind of blew your mind as far as like opportunity? Well, the the first thing I did uh, with Edie was uh, there was a small kind of memorial uh, celebration and Jennifer Hudson needed a small choir Mm. to sing. I know where I've been. That was my first (laughs) I remember thinking, what is going on? (laughs) What is actually happening? Yeah. (laughs) Um, So that was kind of the, I mean, that was literally ground zero for this whole uh, kind of trajectory of opportunities. Uh There have been some really amazing projects, but Lion King, I mean, it was, you know, to be able to sing songs that I watched as a kid. when we were in Capitol Records and Hans Zimmer was there and, and getting to sing and getting to sing out kind of in a, a gospel type, you know, feel, just can't wait to be king. Yeah. I mean, I was just like, this this can't be real. Yeah. <laughs> um, so wow. those moments, yeah, that definitely stuck with me. Wow, that is amazing. You've, uh, you know, you have had um, 
such a big, full career, such beautiful, you know, musical journey. Uh, can you cite any steps along the way where things were a little bit more challenging, or maybe you consider that uh, this just might not be the, the right path? Or do you always feel like you were, you know, really being pushed ahead in music? In my doctorate, like I said, I, I went to, I mean, really, there is no, sorry if I'm, if this is ignorant, but in my mind, there's no reason to get a doctorate unless you're going to teach in a university. Mm. I don't know why else you would need one. Um, and it was while I was at USC that I realized that I didn't really see myself in a university setting. Mm. So then, you know, I have something to think about. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm in the middle of this degree. Uh, I've been in school for 20 decades and it's like, uh, what do I do with that? Um, mm. It had always been the, when I kind of put my mind on something, I, I tend to try to follow through. And so mm -hmm. it was one of the first times that I was like, I don't know what, what is next. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, do I stay, in, you know, do I stay here? I'm going to finish the degree because that's, that's going to happen. But you know, what do I do after that? And mm. I certainly did not imagine that tonality would be the thing that would, you know, start um, and, and keep me here in town. Mm -hmm. um, it was kind of an outlet of anything else, just a way to get back and answer some questions for myself. Um, but since then, uh, it's been opportunity after opportunity, you know, as someone who loves security, it's always nice to know what's coming. Yeah. But really in this field, even as a leader of an organization, you don't know what's coming next. Right. And so I've been very blessed and fortunate to feel like opportunities have come. And if there's ever been a time that I'm like, well, you know, it's a quiet time. There's nothing really going on. Mm -hmm. A random email, a student that I taught will connect me with someone, it, it just kind of continues. So I feel like I've never really had uh, a moment of kind of, so far knocking on all the hard surfaces around, but not yet had a moment where it's kind of like, where are we, what are we doing? I think something, yeah. something comes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so important to have that knowing when you are working in this business. And really, that is what this whole uh, show is based off of. The whole brand of The Unstoppable Singer is really educating singers on the fact that if anything is for certain, it's that this business is unpredictable and oftentimes not very secure. You know, you really have to be... Um, industrious and really establish those that security on your own by really diversifying what it is and that you do in this business and and you know not putting too many eggs in in one basket and if there ever was a time that taught us that um more hardcore that was during covid so uh what was that experience like for you how did that change your career and and how long did it take you to kind of come back from that I always have, a, it's a unique, 
perspective, mm-hmm. COVID was the thing that really catapulted me and tonality. Mm. Because I think the other pandemic of racism and injustice that mm-hmm. occurred kind of thrust us in a national spotlight. You know, I, I assumed that we had been doing, you know, very localized work in our small concerts. And I didn't realize that choirs and leaders around the country were watching what we were doing. Mm-hmm. And so I was in a national conference and it became very apparent that people were starting to ask questions about how we go about diversity, how we go about these social justice issues. And I started doing a lot of talks. It wasn't a lot of singing. I mean, it was no singing in person, but mm-hmm. I paid rent by doing a lot of talks around the country, mm. different organizations and different choirs um, about how do we address the injustices that have, you know, continued silently, but persisted through and how do we kind of make a new paradigm? Mm-hmm. So uh, tonality uh, was featured in the New York times. And uh, I think right out of the pandemic, um, I spoke on the Kelly Clarkson show. And so in some ways, while we weren't singing, we were doing a lot of work from home. Um, but I think the work that we had been doing uh, certainly found more attention in an, a, a new central way. Mm-hmm. And that allowed us really to share what our work had been in LA around the country. Yeah. Wow, that's really remarkable. I love to hear stories like yeah. <laughs> like that that really can draw out those positives that came out of it. I think I think there are just countless positive, you know, aspects that came out of it. I think it taught us so much and that it's so important for us to really frame it in that way to see, you know, what what came to be that just simply probably would not have manifested had, you know, this terrible thing occurred, but um I think that's life in general. But yeah. So again, uh, going back to the, you know, just the fact that you've had such a, a big, diverse, you know, wonderful journey in music. Um, fast forward to today, like what is the day in the life like for you as a professional? What is a day or a week look like for you on average? These days, it's a lot of admin. So mm-hmm. I say I do 90% emails and maybe 10% <laughs> music. Um but, you know, it's, it's talking to composers. I think a lot of the work, and you know, as a conductor, as an organizational leader, but also as a singer, um, a lot of the work is networking. Mm-hmm. I think really you can never underestimate the power of community. Yeah. And when it comes to creating opportunities. And so, yeah, it's a lot of talking to people, going to coffees with people. I mean, that's, that's the work to talk about tonality, to talk about kind of what we offer. Um, I will get a call randomly to put together a small group for a recording session or to put together a reading session. Um, Sometimes I will get calls about uh, my work as a composer arranger. Uh, I have some arrangements that have been published and so I'll be asked to do a masterclass either in person or on Zoom to talk about a piece. Uh, Weekly rehearsals with tonality and uh, yeah, just you know, a lot, a lot of contracting, you know, for tonality tours. Uh, different composers in town now know who we are, and so uh-huh. we'll be called. I, literally, it's it's really funny. 
I will sit and tell someone, yeah, we don't really have something on the calendar aside from our, and then it'll be a day or two. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll just check my email or I'll get a text from someone. Hey, a composer's looking for a choir. Do you mind if I put you in touch? Uh-huh. Um, and so it's really just kind of like, you know, making sure that you're caught up enough on the things to make sure that there's space for, as you said, the inevitable unpredictable way that our business works. Yeah, that's so true. I know I always laugh when I when I talk with other singers about that who have done just incredible, incredible gigs in their life. And you know, they have these just unbelievable highs in their highs in their career, or they'll be consistently involved in a tour or project or something like that. But the second it's over, and you know, you don't have immediately something else lined up, you think, well, that was it. I had a good run. That's true. That's true. I my bags. Right. (laughs) But then like a day or two later, someone will call. Someone will email. But uh, it's funny. It does. It takes, man, it takes a lot of grit and resilience to be in this business. Um, And you obviously have that. So that kind of leads me to my final question of our conversation, which is what is it that makes you unstoppable? I think it's, hmm. I would like to think that uh, what makes me unstoppable (laughs) is uh, that I just continue to, I just continue to try to show up as the best I can. Mm and trust that the universe will meet that intention. Mm, Yeah, I love that. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing your journey with us. Thank you. Um, It's really an honor to have you uh, here and to have this conversation with you. Uh, Where is the best place for everyone to go and um, check you out on social media? Where would you like people to follow you? And uh, tell us again about the um, Tonality event coming up. Sure. So yeah, my socials are Alexander L. Blake, alexanderlblake.com and on all the socials. Uh, tonality is our tonality, O-U-R tonality. Uh, OurTonality.org is a website where you can find all the information about our events. Also for singers, I'm glad that this is here because our auditions are coming up. So certainly if you're looking to get involved in a choir that's doing all types of events, um, along with social justice work, uh, we would certainly love to hear you. And it's our tonality on all socials. The event that's coming up is really highlighting transgender and non-binary neighbors of ours um, and really talking about how we can be better advocates. Uh, I think in LA, we see some challenges. In other parts of the country, the situation's more dire. And I think we really need to be more aware of how people are suffering Mm-hmm. and how this community is suffering and how really all of us can play a part on whether that is voting or support in other ways, uh, certainly around the holidays, um, mm-hmm. to make sure that people feel cared for and supported and, and validated for who they are and that <laughs> that is not something for us as a country um, or law, you know, making and abiding people to decide for individuals. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. 
Wonderful. Well, I definitely, I want to acknowledge you for making that contribution, you know, in the world right now. I know it's just, it's so direly needed and um, it's really wonderful. And I hope that everybody listening will go and follow the group, check them out and singers definitely don't forget that, you know, there is this audition coming up. That's an incredible opportunity, but Alex, thank you once again for doing this. Such an honor to have you here. Wonderful meeting you online. And I hope our paths will cross in person here uh, very soon, but thank you for taking the time and uh, we will sign off and say goodbye for now. Thanks so much for joining us. If you love this conversation as much as I did and would like to help support the podcast, please subscribe and leave a rating and review. To stay up to date with The Unstoppable Singer and get all the behind the scenes content, you can follow me on Instagram at Unstoppable Singer. And while you're there, please share this episode on your Instagram stories and tag me at Unstoppable Singer. Once again, I'm Danielle Tucker, a professional singer and vocal coach. I've spent the last 25 years crafting a successful career for myself in the music industry and showing other aspiring singers how to do the same. The world needs your voice now more than ever. So get out there and create an unstoppable career.